Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. Welcome everyone to Financial Fridays with uh, me, Hannah Chapman, and Mr. Brad Haynes. Uh, we're going to talk about what is happening in the markets, you know, what's gone on the last week, last couple of weeks, and what we expect to see over, you know, soon in the near future. But then also, you know, what are the implications um, that we are seeing? What what reaction are we seeing from the markets right now? And what's the what's the context and what's the subcontext? Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about on these regular uh, financial Fridays with Brad. So Brad, introduce yourself, remind the listeners who we're talking to, and then we'll dive in. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Um, again, I'm Brad Haynes. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of Juncture Wealth Strategies and Juncture Asset Management. I've uh, been managing money for roughly 30 years, uh, CFA charter holder, financial risk manager. So uh, that's, in a nutshell, who I am. Um, so Part-time power lifter. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, you know, we always have to have our hobbies. it's good i love it so tell me what's going on right now and the two things that that i think um are really prescient in both like the collective consciousness and you know investors on the ground inflation and fed rates so let's talk a little bit about those what do you see and what should be what should we see and what should we be looking for? Yeah, those are great uh, topics and they are top of mind of every client, uh, center of influence, any person I run into, their questions are going to be very quickly inflation followed by the Fed policy. So that this is a, is a great topic, very timely, obviously. Um, so today, here as we sit here, or actually yesterday, uh, Thursday, European uh, inflation came out much hotter than expected. And so we're Which, talking today, it's uh, March 2nd is when we're having this conversation. And so we're talking about the European inflation rates that came out today, Thursday, March 2nd. Okay, keep going. So European inflation, X energy. So last year, if everybody remembers, prior to the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, energy, energy prices spiked both oil and gas really spiked dramatically. In fact, everybody was very, very concerned that um, the Ukrainian citizens, Polish citizens, German citizens, French citizens, UK, would would not be able to afford energy uh, this winter um, because energy prices were so high because the supply was constrained, right? Russian oil and natural gas was no longer welcome in Europe. And so, Everybody was very, very concerned. That has not been the case. So this inflation rate was X. They took energy out, that component out, and it's still the highest in many, many years. So that um, is is a very strong follow-on, but it's also followed on by a little bit stronger inflation readings here in the United States over the past week. So it's kind of dovetailing into 
wow, a lot of investors are saying, man, maybe maybe things should stay. Maybe inflation is going to be here a little bit longer than we expected. Maybe through 2023 into 24, what's that going to do to the Fed? What's that, how's that going to impact their trajectory? Um, well, we've had today, we've had a couple of talks from some uh, Fed governor, um, uh, Governor uh, Waller, and then uh, Fed President, Atlanta Fed President, Raphael Bostic, both of which said the exact same message. Mm-hmm. Um, this message was interpreted very differently by the markets. So going into the speech, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ 100 had all sold off pretty decently, um, anywhere from you know down a, a third of a percent to down a half a percent, somewhere in that range all day. Um, uh, President Bostic starts to speak and says, hey, if if inflation is moderating or comes in you know, less than expected, we're probably just gonna go with 25 basis point increases or a quarter of a percent, and then we'll have to see. Well, that's what the market heard. The market then rallied pretty significantly to um, positive levels and stayed that way for the rest of the day. If they would have li- listened to the second half of his comments, he also said, if inflation stays where it is today or stronger, then we're gonna, then I can see and justify a higher interest rate p- path for much longer. Hmm. Those comments were also reiterated by Governor Waller after President Boston. Now that it did not sell off the market. It the market continued and and closed positively, um, and so that's kind of what I experienced. What I think 2023 is going to be like. It's going to be the tale of of two different extremes. You're going to have people that are very much wanting the equity market to go up mm-hmm. um, because they believe the Fed is going to pause, and then you have a, another group of people who believe the market is going to decline significantly because interest rate policies, interest rates are going to be much higher for much longer. And they're going to eventually, the Fed is going to break some part of the credit or liquidity markets. So when I sit, we we typically have our, you know, investment um, meetings on Wednesdays where, you know, the advisors get an update on, on Brett's thoughts for the week. Um, and I'm usually the one, you know, I, raise my hand and ask all kinds of questions. Um, Because when I see something like, hey, if inflation is still going up, hey, if the Fed is saying they're still going to raise interest rates, like why is the market responding the way it's responding? Why is it, you know, either dropping significantly or in today's case, like raising significantly when we're still talking about rate hikes coming in? Um, And so I love how you expand on that and say, yeah, you're, you're right. There is a disconnect and here's the disconnect. And here's where I think that's going to, you know, take things later on in the year. So let's, let's keep opening that up a little bit more because people, I think need to, um, people want to know, people want to under have at least some understanding of the mechanics between these two forces, inflation and interest rates. 
right? Because we hear about it enough on um, MSNBC and, you know, like uh, CNN and tickers and, um, well, I'm usually just on my phone, right? So Apple scroll, um, you know, the news that comes out, they'll just talk about, you know, the Fed raised interest rates or the Fed didn't raise interest rates as much as we thought they would, or inflation came out at this crazy number, right? Without context. So what is the context that you see that we're, that we're not necessarily getting in the, you know, um, headline news that people are absorbing without, you know, having a deeper understanding. One context that I believe people are 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 missing a little bit is um, is for the past twenty years the Federal Reserve has maintained a a lower than normal interest rate policy, whether it's quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. It, you know, just lowering interest rates to virtually zero for 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 a very long period of time. Mm-hmm. That that is a context that a lot of pe- a lot of investors that is that's that's what their lifetime their investor lifetime consists of. They they've never been in markets in the '90s and early 2000s when freely floating yield curves and interest rate policy were 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 that way, but they're at normal levels. So, yeah, let's put that into context, too, because when we talk about, um, you know, what's normal to an investor, we're not just talking about people who are in their 20s right now. Right. When you say 20 years of of very low interest rate Fed policy, that is I mean, when we think about when people truly start saving for retirement, start having assets that they're starting to put away. A lot of times that's someone in their late thirties, forties, fifties, even. And so we're talking about if you started saving 20 years ago and you were 40, now you're 60 and this is the only interest rate environment you really know. So this is not talking about just, you know, the younger generation who's starting out right now. This is this is a huge portion of the population representing most of, you know, the people who actually have retirement savings, which would be in that, you know, age at least 35 plus range. This is this is the entire experience we've had with the stock market personally. And that that goes for me too. I'm almost 39. Um I started I think I started my first 401k when I was probably 19 because that's just me. Um but for the most part, right? Like same. Um, so let, let's talk about that a little bit because in the 80s and 90s, some people um, listening might have a little bit of context around this. You know, when we talk about like the savings and loan crisis um, in the 80s and, you know, we don't have an actual memory of having a mortgage that had a 17% interest rate, but we know that that happened at one point. So walk us through that a little bit. I think that's a really interesting, um, again, piece of context for what we're experiencing now that we that we need to kind of be reminded of. Okay, can I share my screen? Yeah, let's do it here. Let me give you, let me give you permission. So for the people who are uh, going to get to see this on YouTube, this is this is special. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, they don't have benefit of the visual. I will walk people through um, verbally what we're looking at. 
So what we're looking at right now, Hannah, is the federal funds rate, which is, quote unquote, when we raise interest rates, we raise the Fed funds rate. That's what the, Fed, the Federal Open Market Committee does. And so you can see that, uh, you know, from 2000, which is right here, okay, this little point right here, all the way to today, we've had a very low interest rate policy. So on the graph, that is the highest point since 2000 was what? Five? Yeah, five, like we five, five and a half. 05, 06, 07. And then right now, obviously, we're at four, four and a half to four and three quarters, which the expectation that we'll go over five in March, in the next meeting, which is this month. Um, so this right here is, is an abnormal environment. Okay. Mm -hmm. So basically from 2000 to 2022, that's an abnormal environment. As you can see, the prior to 2000, you can see the average was somewhere in the six, 7% for the Fed funds rate. So what does that mean? So if you're looking across the economy, it means a mortgage rate of, you know, seven to eight, 9%. It, it's, it's uh, money market rates of five, six, seven percent. It's corporate bond rates in that in that same neighborhood. And you also had PE price to earnings ratio on the broader index much lower than today's. Mm. And that's where I think people get really caught up is they're looking at PE ratios and they're so elevated. Well, that world has changed because. Mm. As you have inflation, i.e. higher interest rates in the economy, that's really healthy, but it also will, will constrain investors to say, okay, what about the stocks today that are going to benefit from higher interest rates, benefit from inflation? You know, those are typically value type, type companies that produce cash flow today, not 10 years from now, which is, you know, a little bit the growthy, the, 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 um, yeah, more the growth names, more the innovation uh, names, which did very phenomenal the past 20 years, mm -hmm. going forward, may not have that kind of wind in their sales as much as some of the value stocks, some of the international, some of the smaller cap uh, companies that we're starting to see uh, lead, lead, the, industry, lead the, the market here. So let's, okay, this is this is really beautiful. So I want to um, explain this one more time. So from 2000, the year 2000 till 2022, the the range of rates has been between five and down to zero percent, or it's the highest. Highest was about 6% in 2000, right? And then dropping down. Um, if you start in March of 01, the highest was five. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So that five to, down to zero and then it held, we held at zero for a long time, um, a really, really long time. So on this graph, that's what Brad is showing. There's this trough that was really extended where from, you know, this graph goes from 1973 all the way to 23. So 1973 to 2000, we were seeing rates, you know, as high as 20% and not going below that like at the lowest point, it was in the fours, but mostly it was in that six to 7% range, like you're saying. So this, this aspect that you're talking about right now, let's, 
let's open up the value versus growth because that's a really interesting point that I would like to um, noodle on for a minute here too. So a value stock, a value stock, again, like Brad said, is usually something that pays money now. And the word that you might understand with that is dividend, like a dividend paying stock. So you think about the big companies that, you know, you get your dividend every, every month, that's a value stock. If you're talking about a growth stock, so like a large cap growth stock, we're not going to give any specific names on the podcast, um, but that would be a company where they're not paying dividends to their investors. Instead, they're reinvesting in the company over and over and over again, pushing for more and more growth. So on the value side, part of your return comes from the dividend that they pay. And it's usually regular and steady and, you know, you know what your dividend is going to be and you can kind of plan for it. And, you know, the underlying price of the stock should, you know, hopefully climb over time too. The growth side, you're not getting that steady dividend. You're not getting that income. Instead, your appreciation comes when the, the actual price of the stock itself goes up. That's your only increase. Um, so interest rates, the reason we're talking about this right now is because interest rates and inflation heavily affect what is going to outperform, right? And so one of the calculations of, well, should we be more in value? Should we be more in growth? Should we be more in international? Should we be more in small cap versus large cap? All of those different pieces of the equation, uh, can really be heavily affected by interest rates and inflation. So talk about that for me a little bit. So a great example, and I think this is probably the best way to 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 understand this um, concept of um, we call it in the business equity duration, and I'm sure everybody will be so excited to hear that. <laughs> but essentially, what it means is. Um, is a, a stock that does really, really well in an inflationary environment are like the oil stocks. Okay. Shut, you know, well, I don't want to say any specific names, but there are a lot of big oil integrated companies that do extremely well when the price of oil goes up, which is inflationary, right? That's a little bit of inflation not in, in our economy. If gas prices go from $3 a gallon to $4 a gallon, that is infl that's inflation just in that one product. So if you think about that, the oil company that produces the oil, refines the gasoline, um, that is, that's very impactful for them. They increase their revenues very, very quickly, which falls to the bottom line. So their profits go up a lot. So fast forward to a recession where not many people are driving around as much. They're certainly not taking family vacations. They're not flying. You know, businesses are not sending people on, on their business flights nearly as much. Well, the demand for that product, the gasoline and for jet fuel goes down. So as that demand goes down, the supply is the same. That price declines to reflect that new reality of lower economic activity. Well, that is what we would call 
a value type company. Their revenues and earnings go up or down with the, the cyclicality in the economy. So when things are good, their earnings take off like a rocket. They, they make a lot of money very quickly. Conversely, when the, the economy slows down or goes into a recession, company that's innovative. You know, they have a, a phenomenal new technology that they want to roll out across the economy. It's supposed to you know, increase labor productivity a lot. Well, it, it's, it's going to take a while to get to earnings for that company. So any amount of cash flow they have, they're reinvesting right back into the new technology, right back into the company. And then what happens is over a long period of time, you'll start to see earnings come through. A lot of the large cap technology companies that we've had that currently dominate the S&P 500 started out 20, 30 years ago as smaller innovative companies that have just grown. They've grown to that point where they're producing a tremendous amount of cash flow. But the growth in that cash flow isn't quite um, as exciting as like an energy stock when oil price goes up. Okay. Mm -hmm. So again, it's very, they're very, very different type of companies. Both companies have a, 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 an important part in your portfolio. You just, how much you own relative to each other, depending on the macro environment is very, very critical. So the other thing, so let's go, let's go back to this kind of global viewpoint that you take, because um, I think from experience, um, I think from experience, I know from experience that not every portfolio manager has this, has such a holistic view of, all right, well, yeah, let's talk about uh, energy prices in Europe last year, right? I remember that because you talked about it, but I don't know that I would have any clue that that was an issue that could also be you know, driving global economic, you know, um, values if you weren't here talking about it. So looking at a global scale, what are the pieces that you're currently seeing, feeling out, paying attention to um, that could affect A, the U.S. stock market, because we are a global economy, you know, so Things that happen outside the world are also affecting our major indices, right? Um, but then also in just in portfolio building in general, like when do you start to add back in internationals? When do you start to, you know, consider what areas to invest in? Uh, those are all great questions. I'm going to redefine that a little bit as um, what do I see in terms of risks, okay? Uh, because right now a, a risk is a is an opportunity, but it also has some 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 risk associated with with it. Okay, so these factors that I'm going to talk about, um, they both can provide opportunity, but also risk to a portfolio. Um, one of the things I'm looking at right now, which could affect the U.S. stock and bond markets, is um, the debt limit negotiations. Uh, that is generally and historically been a non-event. 
it's been a, you know, Congress will just sign off on it because we know the U.S. can't default because a lot of a lot of uh, the world economics and, and, and financial markets are based on a risk free rate, which the U.S. Treasury up until now has been the risk free rate. That's the proxy for it. So. But this time, there's there's more uh, kind of vitriol around the negotiation or lack of negotiation um, for the debt limit to be to be raised. Hmm. Now, I think what could happen is um, there's going to be very few, very little issuance of U.S. Treasuries up until that time, and that is going to be a problem. Uh, uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen has to kind of rob Peter to pay Paul um, during this time where we've, we've hit the debt limit. We, we still need to pay our bills. So she has to do some financial jank, uh, finagling until the time that we get that debt limit passed. Okay. And supposedly June, July is what I've heard is the time frame for that to actually get passed. Now, what's going to happen when it gets passed? is you're going to have a rush of supply in U.S. Treasuries coming on the market. Uh, right now, if you look at the yield curve, it's very inverted. There's a, you know, it goes up for a little bit for a year, and then it starts to drop off pretty significantly towards the later, the, the further out ex ex uh, maturities. One, one reason for that um, hump, hump in, the, in the beginning is higher interest rates. But people have said, well, why aren't the longer term yields increasing to reflect a higher inflation rate? Because right. that generally uh, impacts that further out curve. One of the things is the demand and supply dynamic of the longer term bond. Um, we have had a, we've had a lot of purchases from the Federal Reserve in that area. They have stopped. Obviously, they're letting some of that stuff mature off now. Um, and so they're shrinking their balance sheet so that marginal investor is not there anymore or is not the Fed anymore. It's it's now going to be financial investors and other central banks. Um, but we believe that there is going to be kind of an, an increase in supply in the further out the curve uh, for treasuries, which may have a had a corresponding increase in yield in those further out as we get to the the middle part to the to the third quarter. So end of second quarter, early third quarter, you could see the yield curve shift up in a pretty meaningful way. Now, what does that mean to the stock market? There you it go. Means that the stock market is probably not going to establish a great trading pattern or a great. It's not going to establish a new bull market during that time. There's one, too much uncertainty. Two, the Fed hasn't paused yet. Um, but once we get to the point where that that increase in supply of Treasury securities has come out and the Fed has started to see that we're entering a recession or a, a, a big slowdown to like zero on, on GDP growth, they might come out and say, okay, now we're going to pause. And once we pause, once they once the Fed pushes that pause button and the Treasury securities are assimilated into the market, that's when I believe you're going to start to see equities start to make a foundation 
upon which they could they could rally towards their their uh, their highs or start to make their way back towards their highs. I don't think they're I don't think there's very much probably very high probability they're going to make their highs uh, in 23 or 24, but they'll start to put that pattern into place. Interesting. Interesting. So it has more to do with that feeling of it's so funny because I um, talk about this on like literally a personal level too. Like, so it's funny that it, it, it holds true in the macro, that feeling of stability, that feeling of, okay, things feel safe and slightly more predictable is what then allows for more growth. Absolutely. If you're a if you're a CEO of a large company or you have a household you're running, the same behavioral or psychological concepts apply. Right? So if you're looking at your if you're if you're sitting at home and you're in a household, you're listening to this podcast or watching this podcast, you are the CEO of your home. Okay? So if I was going to tell you, hey, interest rates are climbing a lot over the next year. What, how is that going to impact your, your economic behavior? You know, if you have some floating debt, i.e. credit cards or installment loans, are you going to try to fix that? Or are you going to try to pay it off? Um, it, it, those same decisions that you make for your household apply to the CEO who's running a multi-billion dollar company because that uncertainty for, for him or her is a, hey, do I get to keep my job next year or not? You know, they, they really don't like to take risks where they're not pretty sure that things are going to work out. Um, and so whether the CEO of your household or the CEO of a company, that the same psychological phenomenon applies. Mm. So interesting. It's so interesting. Is there, um, is there any other little piece from, you know, from this week and going into next week, that's, that seems relevant that you're going to be watching for over, over the next little bit here. Yeah. Um, labor productivity. So the only way you can get economic growth, if we're, if we, if we, or whoever has taken economics 101, here we go. Or for those of you who haven't and really never wanted to, I apologize. Here we go. <laughs> You're going to learn something. Yeah, three ways you can do it. You can have, you have labor, you have resources, i.e. natural resources, and you have technology. And the reason technology is important is because technology can help land or natural resources and labor produce more goods with the same amount of inputs. All right. So it allows us to get more for less, which is why we had, you know, the United States, actually the world, but the United States specifically had had such a huge productivity boom, boom over the last 20 years. Why? Well, because of the internet. I mean, if we just look at 2020, the, you know, going into a complete shutdown and within two weeks, for the most part, many, many companies converted from a, you have to be in your seat in the office to you're at home in your office working. So that evolution, that revolution in terms of 
how we function is a huge productivity game. Um, I mean, I know for me, I was able to work more or less the same with without the commute. So even if yeah. I just use my commute, which is an hour and a half a day, okay, if I if I get rid of that and I take part of that time and I actually work, which I did, I'm getting more done for less. Okay. Yeah. So that's a that's an important so I'm watching labor productivity, which has been very, very stagnant for the past uh, couple of years. So it's it's something that you know we had this huge boom in 2020, 21, 22, it did not it, it, it did not continue. Um, and my guess is with AI, machine learning, and the and the like that we're setting up for a new um, boom in productivity, which mm. will eventually bring down, uh, you know, a lot of it'll make things a lot more efficient and effective across the economy. Additionally, I'm looking for, which may or may not happen, but um, transferring of supply chains out of China and out of out of strategic adversaries to the United States and Europe, transferring those supply chains to other nations or to ourselves. So, you know, we used to call it offshoring when a manufacturer would take their jobs to China. Um, and now it's being called onshoring or friendshoring. So we don't necessarily have to move it to the US, but we can move it to Australia. Okay. So if Australia is there and, and, or to Japan or to South Korea, those are, are some places that, that could be beneficial. So that trend of onshoring, friendshoring, however you want to describe it, is something that I'm watching significantly because it, it's gonna it's gonna take a massive amount of money to do it without a tremendous amount of benefit from an efficiency standpoint, mm. but a much, much better resiliency profile. Mm. So you can count on getting your products when you order them, as opposed to, you know, China, which shuts down their entire manufacturing center because of COVID or because they don't like you, whatever. I mean, there's they can do it for any number of reasons. So getting a little more resilient it won't be as efficient. Well, it may be as efficient, but it's going to cost a lot of money for the same efficiency. So it could be a little bit of a drag on the global economy in that sense. Um, so I'm watching that trend as well. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I think we will wrap it up for for this week. Um, and as we said last time, like if any of this like sparked a question um, or you want to hear anything different or, you know, you have a question that you want Brad to address. Um, and then you want me to translate into uh, normal human speak, send them over uh, so we can we can help you learn and, and get to know the financial markets um, on a more intimate level. So anyway, thank you for being here with me again, Brad. I appreciate you and I appreciate all that you do for me and for my clients. Um, and I love getting to put you on this uh, this podcast and let you talk to talk to more people <laughs> well i appreciate the invitation and i will be here anytime uh please do write in your questions um you know i'm always watching a ton of things so uh but if you have a specific question that we can address 
I would love to do a little more research to, to figure that out for you. So please do write it, write us in, in the comments or in an email. We, we would love to do that. Awesome. Thanks, Brad. All right. Have a good one. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at expansiveceo.com and tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, you can find ways to work with me at expansiveceo.com and at xsquaredwealthplanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, wealthplanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.